Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan. Good things will follow. That is until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments, when things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. Brandon Bowling and Paul Bissonnette. I think that that aspect of playing, that's probably what caused the most damage to me even to this day is, is the fight or flight. Oh, wow. I always get those nerves because... It's kind of like the, maybe like putting a, ch- a choke collar on a dog or a bark collar, right? Like they kind of get that, oof, like that, that quick twitch, like, oh, I'm nervous. I try to cope with it and deal with it in, in certain ways. I feel that it's gotten better, but I think that that's something that's going to be instilled for me forever. Bissonette, who's been a good teammate all season for the Coyotes, didn't play a lot. More a Twitterverse hero yeah. than anything else. That's right. A legend. When it comes to that. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Biz Nasty, Paul Bizanet. Paul is a former National Hockey League player for the Phoenix Coyotes. He played in over 200 National Hockey League games, and he's one of the most well-known hockey players on the planet. He's also the star and co-host of Spittin' Chicklets. And while most know him for his loud, sometimes lewd, public persona, there's the Paul Bizanet that his teammates know. A great person a great friend, a guy that'll do anything for anybody. We show that side of Biz. He opens up about anxiety, coping with tragedy, self-medicating, and the stress of being a star on social media. Here's Paul Bizanet on Blindsided. My father was a steel mill worker. My mother was a college professor. Yeah, just a, a, a great upbringing. They you know, showed me a ton of love. Um, you know, gave me resources to all these amazing things, including, of course, uh, you know, hockey and, and provided me with the equipment so I could play the game that I love. So um, also have a very loving sister. And uh, yeah, looking back, definitely very blessed. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Welland, Ontario. And, uh, you know, it was a town of 50,000 people, uh, a smaller community where, you know, everyone seemed to know each other. And, uh, and I kind of like, even just looking from the hockey standpoint is every single coach I had growing up, you know, it, it seemed like my parents knew them and, and it was almost like an extension of the family. So everybody was really looking out for everyone and, uh, just a, you know, a real healthy environment. And what was the dynamic like at home as far as your mom and your dad, your, where your sister came along? Where did you fit in the, in the mix? Were you the, the troublemaker? Were you the little sweetheart? Where did you fit in? I would say troublemaker. would That would probably be a better way to describe it, but more in a sense of I was very stubborn. 
you know, I, I wasn't a big fan of school. I, I focused more on the hockey side of things. I think I drove my mom a little bit crazy. She always used to say, Lord, give me strength. She'd look up at the sky and say that constantly because I, I would be, you know, a, a pain in her butt. But, you know, she was working so hard at her career and she was a little bit more the breadwinner where my father was, you know, an, an more of a nine to five. So he had the ability to, to travel around me and, and drive me to hockey and all these sorts of things. So it was, uh, they, they were such a great team. And and that was that was one thing that I uh, I really took away from it was wow like they they just like work so well together, you know rarely would they would they have arguments, um, and if they did they did so like in a, in a manner where they would you know separate themselves and and, and go have a you know a, a grown up discussion. I didn't know what they were talking about at the time, right? I, I thought it was all 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 peaches and rainbows and roses, but uh, it was uh, yeah it was a great family dynamic and, and they worked really well as a team. You can probably imagine that as a psychiatrist, I don't get to hear those kind of stories all the time. Lots of people who have challenging childhoods related to the relationship with their parents or maybe not feeling that kind of love that was evident right out of the gate for you, which is always heartwarming to hear. But I'm sure there were some challenges you faced as a young man, as we all face challenges. It's what makes us resilient. What were some of the challenges that you remember from an early age? Well, just like, like, even like what you just said right there, like up to a certain point, I guess you don't really realize what, what, what most of of humans and and kids have to go through because, you know, half the, half kids are being raised in a one parent household and, you know, maybe they don't have that calm, loving family dynamic. So that's why when, when, right after your intro, I was like, yeah, like I was, you know, I was blessed. I, I, I didn't really have many issues growing up. And as far as, you know, the, the, the struggles, I, I think it was good because I was drafted to the OHL when I was 16 years old. So I ended up leaving home and I was off on my own. So a lot of those struggles were maybe created the fact that I felt that I was maybe on a bit of an island and probably didn't open up to things that I was dealing with as a young adult going away and living with a billet family at 16 years old in North Bay. So a lot of that was, I was forced to just grow up quick on my own and, you know, it, those long bus rides, we didn't have cell phones. So you spent a lot of time really thinking and absorbing things. So as far as like real deep down issues, mine was always my obsession with trying to make it to the NHL. So maybe found myself comparing myself too much to others and and, and other prospects and, and being so overly obsessive with trying to, trying to achieve that goal. But that also that work ethic and that attention to detail and that obsession with trying to be successful, I think that really, really derived from my mother's side. Like she, like she ended up writing a couple books. And as I said, they work so well as a team. She would, for, for months on end, she would be downstairs in the basement writing books where my father was really left to, you know, help with, with feeding us, driving us to whatever practices. So as far as like real in-depth problems, I really can't say that I that I dealt with a lot of them, other than the fact that I was obsessed with trying to make it to the NHL, and they were they were extremely supportive of that. I wrote that you were a French speaker for most of your early <laughs> life. How how did how did that uh, impact your integration into a team when you're 16? Were you a primary French speaker? So, so I ended up anticipating that I was going to be a, a first two round draft because back in the back in the day you had to be drafted in the first two rounds to be an uh, eligible for underage in the OHL. So in grade seven, as a family, we decided I was going to switch from French immersion to go to English school to better 
my not only my English speaking but reading and writing. So I don't know if it's been beaten out of me the French, but I've definitely lost some of it. I could still understand it a lot better than I can speak it. But uh, it to me it was it, 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 I, I used it as a tool because even when I went up to North Bay, there was you know there was some French speaking people there. So I. Um, yeah, it, it never really held me back because my mother was actually born in Chicago, but when she was two years old after my, my uh, grandfather had, had left my grandmother, she ended up going over to Belgium. So she was actually raised in, in you know speaking French, European French, and then she when she ended up coming back as a teenager with my grandmother, you know she she was uh, she was raised in Port Colburn, and then eventually met my father who was a French Canadian speaking uh, you know uh, person. So did I, did I say that correctly? Uh, so it was funny because he would speak that Quebecois like ra, 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 where she would speak that fluent, beautiful European French. No offense to the Quebecois, but they just kind of speak a little bit more in that that slang. French and uh yeah no so that was that was kind of how that all went and and I and I more used it as a tool than anything so it didn't really confuse me at all I love how you say that when I I I have some great friends in Quebec and these beautiful elegant women so well turned out and they're sitting there drinking a glass of wine going wah (laughs) yeah (laughs) the way that they talk or having a smoke or smoking a cigarette (laughs) and a diet coke and a Joe Louis (laughs) Joe Louis oh my god I want a Joe Louie now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this troublemaker from Welland, stubborn but loved, 16 years old, brain still not fully developed, living with a billet family. How does that look on the ice? I actually didn't call home for the first month that I was away. I never got homesick because I knew that I was off chasing my dream and I was happy where I was. And also, I didn't really open my mouth much as a rookie. Back then, it was a little bit different where you were more seen, not heard. And I was okay with that, you know, because we had, you know, great vets. And I understand that there's a pecking order and there's a a respect level as far as what these guys had established. And they should be the one talking in the locker room. Um, I, I will say that, you know, maybe when you move away from home and all of a sudden you're around men and you don't necessarily have much parental guidance and your billet family is, I was close with them, the Boissonneaux, but you, you know, you don't have to share as much as you maybe would with your parents and you don't have to answer them to them like your parents. So I grew up very fast and caught into that very grown up lifestyle where, you know, I was, you know, maybe chasing women and, and you know, I actually didn't start drinking until I was about 18 or 19. But but as I said, it, 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 it made me grow up very fast and I was maybe overdeveloped for such a young age. Can you talk about what overdeveloped for a young age means? I, I mean, when I was 16 years old, I was on the ice fighting 19, 20 year olds, you know, hanging out with, I would still, I had a fake idea. I would still go to bars. And uh, when I would come home, I would go to bars with my friends in the summertime. I would probably say a lot less sheltered than your normal 16 year old. Cause you're just, you're around men all the time. So that's, I mean, that would probably be the short way to describe it. And maybe just the, 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 the mindset of it's, you know, you against the world, I think that's where I got a lot of the chip on my shoulder. And I, I've always been one to beat to my own drum. I alluded to that earlier. But I think that that really took on a mind of its own when I left home at 16. Like, it really accelerated. I, I mean, I, I, when I signed my contract at 19, I no, no longer needed financial help from my parents. Not like I needed a ton before because I was still getting a little paycheck from the OHL. But, I mean, at 19 years old, I, I, saw, I had a signing bonus of 175000 I was making fifty five grand a year. And, you know, I was never 
I was never an idiot with my money. So all of a sudden I'm independent and you know, I'm on, I'm on my own. I don't, I don't, I don't need that parental guidance or help from my parents. What did you mean by chip on your shoulder? I was never a big rule follower. I always like to do things my own way and then, and then, you know, maybe learn the hard way or, and, or it would work out in my favor, much like my post career where I just don't like authority. I don't at all. That's probably a big reason why I didn't like school because I'm like, I'm learning things that I don't think I'm ever going to have to use. Why am I wasting my time here? I'd rather be at the rink or in the gym or, you know, having fun with my friends. I think it annoyed the authority. And I I don't think my mother really understood it at the time and it it frustrated her. But I I guess you could say overall it worked out, but that might might not work out for for somebody else because once again I had the self-discipline and the drive where at least my focus were were in things that ended up being a positive impact on my life so uh so biz there's a there's a few things I want to get into so you probably played road hockey every day like I did I'm sure you did I was playing so I I grew up in the era where there was no cell phones and there was no online video games so I was playing manhunt with all my neighbor friends I was playing roller street hockey like you just said Whatever it was, I was I was living life. Yeah. So I was I, I want to get into it. So you're 16 years old because I went and played junior when I was 16 as well. Did you feel the pressure from the older vets to? You, I always felt like I had to grow up a lot faster. Um, you know, you hear about 18, 19 year olds talking about sex and all those things, and you, you're kind of like, I had no idea. I remember some of the questions I asked were just. I don't know if they were just laughing at me, (laughs) but you learn, you have to learn how to be a man very quickly from other guys that aren't men at that time themselves. Um, Did you ever feel any of that from your teammates or any in the? Definitely a jaded perspective as far as, you know, like maybe, you know, yeah, the, the amount of women they were, they hanging around with. I, I, but I also don't necessarily attribute that just to being in the hockey realm. It was more just like that, yeah. you know, I mean, you could meet people who aren't just in hockey, who, who were, you know, out chasing girls and, and, and living a certain type of lifestyle. Um, I agree with your assessment though, like guys who think they're men, because I think as you grow older, you really understand what a real man is. So they have, you have a very jaded perception of it. And I would definitely say that in that aspect of life, I was a late bloomer. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't value any of those things, nor at the time was I looking for it either. I was so, I don't want self-absorbed not the word, but I was just focused on myself and where I wanted to get to. I wasn't, I didn't, want to meet a girl to, to, to fall in love and start a family and have kids. That wasn't where my mind frame was. And as far as hanging out with some of them, you know, when I was on the bus, you know, the, Hey, everyone gear down, you're in the, in the, in the bathroom, they throw the change on the bottom and then they yell into, you know, such and such come up with this amount of change. And I'm, I'm laughing about it. Some, some younger guys experiences as far as the bullying and the initiation are very negative and it's really hard to hear some of these kids come out and the, in, the the impact and the effect it had on them in a negative way so much to where it drove them away from even playing hockey i didn't view it like that i viewed it as you know this is just kind of what the male bonding perception is this is kind of where they get their humor but i also wasn't one of those guys who took that and and imposed it on others i was just never i just would rather have a a, a drink with one of the guys and get to know them and, and, and shoot the breeze. It was such a bizarre 
thing that was passed on down the line. Remember back in the day, they used to shave guys or like shave an eyebrow. And I just don't, I didn't get the whole embarrassing other guys aspect of it all. Diane, we talk a lot about brain development in your teenage years. What does it do to have a kid go from a loving two-parent household to essentially Lord of the Flies playing in junior hockey with 20 other guys between the ages of 16 and 20? The best part of that question, Corey, is that the kid comes from a loving, supportive home, and that's because that's the environment that is most likely to develop a mentally fit, resilient kid. That said, you probably felt really grown up when you left home, Corey, and all the other 16 and 17-year-olds seem to be just fine, but it it's in reality that kids' brains continue to grow and become spe- more specialized as they grow into their 20s. It'll come to no surprise to anyone who has a teenager that their ability to think ahead, to critically think, to organize their thoughts and and plan for their next steps is really not well-developed. And for some teens, it's pretty much non-existent. So those brain functions, the the critical thinking, the forward thinking, the organizing, the planning, they come from the part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's called your executive functioning. And while each of us is unique— The prefrontal cortex is not fully formed for most people until they're about 25. So you take a 16 or 17-year-old kid pumped up on testosterone, excitement off the Richter scale. They've left their prefrontal cortices at home. That's their mom or their dad. And they're being exposed to all kinds of situations that they're not prepared to cope with. They actually can't cope with them because their brains are not yet fully developed. And as you know, that can lead to a whole lot of problems. Paul left home at 15 or 16 years of age, as did I, was the 11th grade in high school. What does that do? Is that leaving too early from the nest? What does that do to a person when they've not even finished high school and go into a situation where all of a sudden you're kind of on your own. You're living with another family you've never met before and you're trying to find a way to play in the National Hockey League, but you're only 15 or 16 years old. Is that detrimental to a child's brain development or could it also build resilience? Well, people say that may make you become an adult. It's a rapid acceleration into an adulthood, but it's actually not. It's a rapid acceleration into adult situations that your brain is just not prepared to manage. And imagine yourself with poor impulse control. You're not able to think ahead or critically think like an adult would. That's going to lead you into potentially a lot of problems. Maybe you don't say no to going out every single night and you end up with an alcohol problem. That's... Paul talks about drinking at, at a young age, and I did the same thing playing with older, older, older kids. But it was also a great experience for me. So how do you, you don't want to take that experience away from somebody, but as a parent, I feel you have to be a little bit more protective of your child in the environment that they're going into. In that sense, is it possible to develop mental health issues in a situation such as leaving home as a 15 or 16-year-old, to fulfill your dreams. But there's a balance, and there's a balance for a parent. How young is too young? 
Well, I think what we have to think about are what are the situations we can put kids in that they're most likely to be successful. So I think the the young people that navigate this best are the ones that stay closer to their family or they're with a billet family that gives them that ongoing sort of family support. Also, team leaders need to recognize that even though these young guys look like grown men, they're not grown men. So that they have to have some rules of conduct or code of conduct that has teeth. If you're doing these things, you're not going to be on this team anymore. Making sure there's mentors in place that can help them to to mature. And then there's the organization. So not just the, the coaches, the the older team members, but also the whole organization that has to really pay attention to the fact that these are young men, they're not fully mature, they need to make sure that the leaders are the right leaders, that they understand that these kids aren't yet mature enough, and also not just thinking about the kid's skill on the ice or the kid's skill on the field, but also where are they from a maturity perspective. Paul is a very smart man, though. He battled his way through and eventually got called up to the NHL. His personality, mixed with the success and fame of playing in the National Hockey League, helped him to become a star on social media. He became a Twitter sensation, which was both good and trouble. Fortunately, I, you know, I haven't really said anything that's like, I, I said one thing at one point where I said, uh, sorry, communist, back to the Soviet, joking around about when um, Ilya Kovalchuk had his deal rejected. Oh yeah, and right. you know, I mean, that, I, it's more of a like a I guess a prejudice statement than anything. And I was young, and I learned the hard way. I ended up deleting my first Twitter account. But outside of that, I mean, I don't think I've really crossed a line in a in a in a crazy sense. And you know, <laughs> thankfully, and and you know, the last thing you want to do is you want to hurt somebody's feelings that bad where they're that irritated and and you know want you shot into a rocket into space. But yeah, it's it's been walking that fine line, and also through the years, what I used to joke around about online has, you know, I think the pendulum is swinging. I think has it gone a little bit too far one way and, and getting a little bit crazy for sure. I think that that I've done a good job of of walking that line, and 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 a good thing about being on social media for me is the fact that you're seeing these interactions and people complaining about what they're upset about. So you're, you're trying to siphon through that information and say, you know what? I, I do understand that point. So I am going to stop doing that and talking in that manner. And on the flip side, as I mentioned earlier, you might say, this is absolutely ridiculous that this person's getting that upset about it. They might have had something happen in their past where that's triggering that and why they're upset about it. But Ultimately, you, you gotta you gotta you weigh it out and, and say, uh, well, yeah. As much as I might understand it, I don't agree with it. I've learned recently that the algorithms in social media actually reward venom, right? Yeah. The more venomous, the more obnoxious what you have to say is, it's pushed to the top and gets a wider audience, and that keeps people going. Which you get more advertising and on and on. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, and it's of course the exact opposite of what your parents would have taught you about how to manage bullies, how to manage fools, is not to amplify them, right? So, how have you? worked or do you work? Is this something you feel any kind of responsibility with the kind of platform you have to bring the temperature down to sort of change that? Big time. And, and I have, like I, that, that was a, a big component as to how I got so popular on, on Twitter. Now, mind you, 
I would never, never attack somebody. But when I used to have people come at me, I would hundred percent respond and I would go, I would go harder. And that was that, remember I talked about the chip on my shoulder. That's, that's what I had. And I think that as at the, and things happen for a reason, right? As much as it helped me at that point in time, over time, I, I started realizing like, this is taking a lot of your energy and you're never going to win this battle. You're, I mean, you're, 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 you're arguing with someone where you're not going to change some stranger's opinion who's never met you online as far as what they think about you. And even, I mean, Hershey, we were talking about it on, uh, on the cell phone about how when I got the TNT gig, I had somebody from Deadspin write, write an article. And, you know, it's the same old rinse and repeat. And maybe it's based off the things that they'd heard online about me when I first started the podcast based on what I was talking about. So they've already made up their mind as to who I am. And I a sign of maturity is now I just don't even, I'm not going to give it my oxygen. It's just like, it's just like, cause I, I, I noticed that when I stopped doing that and I f- even more so focused that time and energy on what I'm growing, it's just like, then that, that, then I'll get in the rocket ship. Biz, when, when we grow up in a locker room too, like we can hit people pretty hard. Oh yeah. Our, our buddies can take it in the locker room and you get out in the real world. And it's like, They've never dealt with that. So I have to watch that I pull back because like Big if time. I said something to you in a locker room, you could laugh it off. But, you know, you get on Twitter and, and yeah. Well, Hershey, like when people are coming at you on, on, on Twitter, like, or even for me, I, I, if it's a chirp, it's fine. I actually, in fact, joy getting ripped on. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> like, the, the, you know, like, oh, you okay, whatever, you bench warmer or whatever it may be, right? I can have a, I, I'm as self-deprecating as they come, but there's a certain line when I feel like it's malicious and that's when the, the wires used to cross. Well, yeah, I love that you, f- I love that you figured out what you needed to do to stay in the NHL. I played with some really good players that never figured it out. And a guy named Stu Barnes is a friend of mine, had had 140 points in junior and figured it out. He was going to play in the NHL as a third line center penalty killer. And I never figured out that I was a good backup goalie. (laughs) So how did you figure that out, that that's how you were going? Did you have somebody that told you that? Was it something you just knew or, you know, how did you get to that point in that role? So and wait, um, you know what? I'm going to cut you off right here, Biz. You were a lot better player than people think you were. Like you were very self-deprecating about that, but you were a good player. Yeah, but 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 the thing is, it's a lot of guys. It doesn't translate to them understanding as being a really good player in the even the AHL. It's, it's got to be God to play in top six forward and, and to be a top four defenseman in the National Hockey League. Like at a certain point, it's like everybody is going to have talent and this and that. It's just almost like God given. It's just like hey, there's only there's only so many jobs on this planet in the NHL for those roles. Um, and and I forget who we talked about this recently with is when you're coming up through the ranks, right? Remember how I ha- I have that Type A personality and I got that chip on my shoulder and I'm you know, ultra competitive you viewed your teammates as your teammates and you wanted to be a good teammate, but you're also your competitor in a sense of you want to get, be the guy who they call up and get to that place. So over the years, like you might have teammates who you're, you're friends with, but you might not have treated them as closely and been as supportive of them as you would have liked looking back, but there's, there's many dynamics to it. But at that point, when I got switched over to fourth line left wing, it was more like, hey, part of your role here is you have to be an ultra great teammate 
you have to make sure you're smart defensively. You have to make sure you're fighting and sticking up for your teammates. So that was something that you, I naturally had, but you almost had to elevate it to the point where the reason I kept my truck and if a guy called to go move him is like, I wanted that star player to, to feel like, you know, I, I wanted him having less on his plate away from the rink so he could be successful at the rink because if everybody's successful at the rink, then we're good as a team and, and the less management wants to change stuff. I played five years in Phoenix. I was a healthy scratch, more games than I actually played. And when I was in the lineup, I'd play, I'd say throughout my 202 games with the Coyotes or whatever it was, I probably averaged three, three and a half minutes of ice time. And even that was low for a fourth liner. So a big component to me signing two, two one-way contracts for two years apiece was just be a great teammate, make sure you're but fighting and your sticking up for them and, yeah. and all the other stuff that goes with that. And that just goes with, with uh, observing, you know, just kind of figuring it all out as you go. Me, me, me trying to, you know, compete with that second liner to be a, a, a scoring forward. Like they're going to be like, uh, what the fuck is this guy doing? Like, all right, next, next guy who wants to play fourth line left wing and shut the fuck up and get his truck to help guys move. Right. So it's just so, you know, you, you, you eventually got to be smart enough to figure it out and, and alluding to what you said earlier, plenty of guys 120 points in junior think they're going to go and be a top six guy yeah. and but i also like a, a brad richardson play with him in Owen sound my last year junior he scored 40 goals high uh, he was a fourth rounder for colorado but played at a very young age in colorado and they thought maybe he was gonna end up being a top six guy didn't work out for him if he would have stayed stubborn and thinking that what he was he would have been out of the league in two three years well he's still he's playing fourth line center killing penalties, blocking shots, um, you know, being a, a pest out there. He, he, I think he won one Stanley Cup with the LA Kings, played 15 years, probably has 20 million in the bank. Well, he's a guy who figured it out. Was he, was he more talented than that other guy putting up 130 points? No, he was just smart enough to figure it out that there's other roles that you can play. You fought some pretty, pretty tough dudes. Like you fought some, some heavyweights. What was that like? To sit, so I'll, I'll give you, you get the game notes. I'll give I'll, I'll tell you, Diane, you get game notes before every game. And you can see, and you see what stats guys have. You see how many penalty minutes they have. And you're looking at those game notes, Biz, and you see the other guy across, and you know, in order for you have to fight him. What is that anxiety like? Even the night before, right? You you know, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I know you fought Jans, yeah. Jansen, Cam Jansen. You guys are buddies or whatever. Uh, but there was a lot of bigger other guys. How was that anxiety knowing that you have to go and you have to fight that guy the next night? And he, he's a monster. He, yeah, yeah, there were some tough dudes. Yeah. So I, I usually didn't know if I was going to be in until the day of. Right. And I think that that was a good thing because I wasn't so focused on it the night before. But when I found out that I was in and I knew that there was a guy on the other team, yeah, the anxiety and all those feelings that you're talking about would elevate, and that pregame nap became a lot tougher. And I think that that aspect of playing, that it, that's probably what caused the most damage to me, even to this day, is is the fight or flight. That anxiety and all those feelings would go to where before I have to do some do my job, just like before when I get on before a podcast when I record. I always, 
I always go to that place, no matter how I try to handle it naturally, like drinking a, a nice calming tea and make sure I exercise or whatever it is. Before I go on television for TNT, I always get those that those nerves because I just it's it's kind of like the you know the maybe like putting a, ch- a choke collar on a dog or a bark collar, right? <laughs> like they kind of get that oof, like that that quick twitch, like oh I'm nervous. Like that type of uh, that type of situation. So I've tried to I've tried to cope with it and deal with it in, in certain ways. Um, I I feel that it's gotten better, but I yeah. think that that's something that's going to be instilled for me for, uh, forever. All right, Diane, we have two things we need to unpack here: anxiety and social media. Let's start with the first one. How can a person who feels anxiety coming on better diffuse it? Well, I think the first step is actually to recognize you're having anxiety. You actually know what's going on. Because most of us pretty confidently can say, I feel anxious. But sometimes anxiety presents with physical symptoms. Maybe you have an upset stomach, you have diarrhea, bloating, gas, body aches, headaches. That doesn't mean that those physical experiences aren't real. The problem is real. It's just that it may be caused by anxiety rather than a gut infection, or a bad burrito. So if you're experiencing anxiety and it's not impacting your ability to function at work, at school, at home, then there are a lot of things you can do to help yourself. Make sure you're getting enough sleep. And most of us need seven or eight hours at night. Eat healthily. Get those 30 minutes of physical activity every day, and that actually grows brain cells. It can protect your brain from anxiety and from depression and also learn how to be mindful. Now, there are apps that are, many of them free out there, that can help you to learn to be mindful. It really does help to settle down that mild anxiety, help your brain to feel more settled, whether it's during the day, whether it's before you're going off to sleep, or you wake up in the middle of the night, you start to feel anxious, going down a a rabbit hole, learning how to be mindful can help you to get back to sleep. If your anxiety is getting in the way of you being able to work, go to school, get along with other people, that's when you need to seek some professional help. Go see your family doctor or nurse practitioner, and they can help to figure out how severe is this? Do you need to just shore up your self-care, or do you need to do some talk therapy or maybe some medication? I'm doing a therapy right now called DBT, Delectical Behavior Therapy. And what I've found is that a lot of my anxiety comes from future worry that I don't even know is going to happen yet. Um, it's taught me to stay in the moment. And is that something that can benefit a person? Is that mindfulness? That's really mindfulness. It's being able to keep yourself present in that moment, accept that you have anxiety, you have those worries, but let it flow through you. Accept that you have it, let it flow through, and really focus on where am I right now instead of always, but what if, but what if, but what if. Now, sometimes you can learn those skills and be really effective at them, but they're skills. You do have to take the time to learn them. Sometimes you need help to do that. You're seeing a therapist right now to help you to be able to do that, and sometimes it's really severe and you need medication. Uh, I've loved it. I don't know why we don't teach it in high schools. It's uh, a lot of emotional regulation. And then the second part, social media. How does it contribute to anxiety, and what have you seen it do to people's moods? Social media really is a double-edged sword. Right. When we first were exposed to social media, we learned that it could help you to 
keep in contact with people you care about, build new relationships. But now we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it it can do some serious harm. And that's particularly for people who are really young, that they're not able to manage some of the things that they are exposed to through social media. You know, people, as you know, will say things on social media or post things that they would never say to your face. They certainly wouldn't say in front of their grandmother and this sort of cowardly, venomous kind of behavior. It doesn't hurt me because I don't read it. So I don't allow anyone to occupy that space in my brain. I figure if I'm not having you over to dinner, I'm certainly not going to give you access to one of the most private parts of me, which are my thoughts and my feelings. But when you're a young person, you haven't developed that level of confidence. You're still highly influenced by others. You can't help yourself but to read that kind of stuff and internalize it. So if you add to that all of the, what we know about manipulation through algorithms, for instance, that can take kids deeper into the things that they're worried about, whether it's their body shape or their size or their sexuality, whatever it is that that pulls kids into this kind of toxic stew that causes them distress, anxiety, and even self-harm. We, and we know for some kids it's led to suicide. Diane, you and I have talked about this. Between the years 2007 and 2017, suicide rates for 10 to 24-year-olds went up 56%, and that's an actual CDC stat. Does your profession or yourself in general feel that social media has contributed to that? The CDC didn't really know why. That was one of the posits, one of the things that they're considering is that social media plays a role. That, those are U.S. statistics, and, you know, there's access to, to drugs, there's fentanyl, but there is also social media there. And if you ask me personally, absolutely, I think that it plays a role. I, I guess if someone like Paul, his professional career, his, his profession requires him to interact with social media, but for a young person... I, I think we need to do a lot more to educate about how to manage social media. You know, I, I have to have email, and I hate email. I'd like to quit email. But if I read it and I see that something nasty is coming, someone's reading writing something that's really unpleasant, I'm just not going to read it. But for a young person, they don't have that confidence to say, I'm not going there. They're just not able to do that. So I think we, we need to teach kids about how to use social media more appropriately. Uh, I think that we need to teach them also about intention. What is the intent of this? And if it's just a harm, then don't read it. But also the way that they read about what other people have said and done. You know, it's very easy to be very critical of other people. Everyone else is an idiot till you really think about all the idiotic things you've done yourself. We're doing a lot of canceling of people who have done something, you know, three years ago or 30 years ago that they regret. Well, show me someone who doesn't regret something that they've done in the past. After about 200 National Hockey League games, Paul Bizonette found himself back in the minors, the place where it first started. He felt down. It wasn't the first time for him. The thing is, he's felt the impact of depression before. I felt achy and sore every day. I, I, I couldn't get off the couch. I, I couldn't even bring myself to go train because I was so sore. I was like short of breath. And 
fortunately for me, instead of um, going to alcohol or prescription pills, I called the league. I called the league doctors, Dr. Shaw. Who's the, who's the other one, Hershey? Yeah, Do you know the other one? Uh, I just know Dr. Shaw. Yeah, Dr. Shaw, but there's two of them. And they said, listen, start cranking vitamin D, go for about four or five walks outside a day, work on your breathing, take deep breaths. And you know, I started doing that. It did help. Did it help to the extent I'd hope? No. It was scary because most people, or, or some people, excuse me, might have turned to alcohol and then it keeps going deeper and a deeper and a deeper dive into to that depression and or prescription pills and who knows where it goes. Another advantage is I was I was close to home. I could go see my parents. I could talk to my mom and dad. You know, I, I still had a great relationship with my family. So some people don't have those safety nets. I did. And how, how I got through it was fortunately I was able to go back to doing what I love. But I think the biggest fear and element of it all was I was being stripped of my livelihood, something that I'd been doing my whole life where that's all I knew. And I, a hundred percent of my focus was on that was then gone. It was stripped from me and I had no control over it. And that's what I think led to my depression. That's what led to me to being basically a psycho about my post career and how much I, I stayed busy and stay moving because you never know when it's going to be taken. You know, one of the first things, and, and I, I hope, again, we talked about this on the phone, but you had a friend when you were a child or younger that had, I believe, taken their own life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if if you could just, uh, you know, and, and Biz, like, I've had someone like that, and it's the absolute worst. How old were you? And if you could, you don't need to go into detail, but how did that affect you? And how did you get through it? You know, at the time, I really didn't understand it. And I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't know if suicide was as prevalent back then, but it was the first time that I'd experienced it. And I just, I was like, like, what? Like, like you know, I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. He was the happiest guy in the world. Like what's going on here? Like this. And obviously I was a wreck. I ended up leaving my junior team. So I, I, I went back for Christmas break, uh, ended up throwing a party at my house that underage year when I was playing in, uh, in North Bay. And, you know, of course he was there. His name was Trent Richardson. And, uh, he ended up staying that night at my house because, you know, we, I, they, you know, everyone had, I think everyone had had a few too many cocktails, but I, I remember I wasn't drinking much at the time, if, if any, because I was still 16. I don't think I first time I got drunk was prom. So I go back after Christmas break and uh, uh, our coach Hicks, assistant coach, he's like, hey, um, he called my hotel room. He goes, hey, uh, Jamie Tardif reached out. He says it's an emergency, who was my other best friend. He, he goes, give him a call on this number. So I went down to the payphone. We were on the hotel on the road. I think we were in Mississauga at the time. And I called him. I said, oh, what's up? And he goes, buddy, he goes, Trent killed himself. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was like in shock. I, I was crying. I luckily the team allowed me to leave after our weekend games to go back home to, to go to the funeral and everything. And, you know, look, looking back, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't know what he was going through at the time it was explained. There were a lot of personal things that he was going through that none of us knew about. And we're going back to a time where not only at that age, was he probably too scared to bring that up and talk to his buddies about it? But I don't even, I, I don't know how much he was even talking to his parents about it. Cause it was just, it was, it was a conversation that was kept, kept under wraps. 
in Hershey, I mean, you've, you've dealt with it a little bit later in life. And at the time, like, I, I don't even know if I've ever really given it that massive thought looking back all the way to when I was 16 and, and, and really comprehending everything. And, you know, you, you were a little bit older when, when you dealt with it. And I, you know, I don't know how you were able to deal with it and, and how it all went down, but that was my experience through it. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to where we are as a society especially with with men because there's this persona where you know you you're toughen it up and this and that that is that is headed in the right direction that is changing you know what we learned in junior was you know suck it up and all that stuff don't show your emotions don't cry any of that stuff heaven forbid you held your girlfriend's hand in public you got to find 20 20 bucks <laughs> and you had no money anyways. that was your whole week paycheck too yeah exactly but if if i had taken my life back then biz um do you think any of my teammates would have come to my funeral and said, oh, he sucked it up like a man. You know, he went out like a man. He didn't talk to anybody. He didn't tell anybody. And I'm sorry that you were in that situation because it is the most awful situation to be in. And it just goes back to like, you were probably sitting there going, why didn't he talk to me? Why, you know, and, and wondering why. I was and, there. I was there with him in the morning yeah. after he, right, we woke up and, you know, it was all smiles and, and you know, in a week later he's gone. And it's just like, you know, I would, I would have gladly had that conversation with him. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to let our teammates and, and other men know that it's right. Like, just talk to me, you know, we, like we can talk and, and, you know, and just that whole manly thing of not sharing your feelings and that. And that's what I wanted to say, but it's like, like, you know, you, you have a persona and of this tough guy or whatever and all that. You are probably if if would be one of the first people that I know that's non-judgmental that I would come talk to. Um Oh, not at all. Yeah. And and that's what we need, right? And and just I can't imagine what you went through back then and, and just wanting to get some answers and your teammates and why didn't he talk to me? And is that kind of the way it went back then for you guys when that happened? Um, are you okay yeah, to talk about I, this? I, I don't, no, no, no. I, I don't, I don't remember really talking about it in depth with any of my teammates, even when I went yeah. back to North Bay. Right. And that might've been just them trying to respect my privacy or, 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 or what it may be. Uh, but, but on the flip side of that, I think it, it's also somewhat personality driven to where when I even got to, to pro at a fairly young age, I was always one that was okay to to open up and have dialogue about stuff and, and feelings. I was I, I never I had never had an, an issue with expressing my feelings. Now, did I hang out with guys where where they would avoid it like the plague, big time? Oh, yeah. And I think as you start getting older, you understand who those and and looking back and how things have transpired and how some of their lives played out. I think that at a certain point, it, it's all going to combust especially if you're just pounding it down, pounding it down, pounding it down. I was never one of those guys to keep pounding it down. But I also had my mother that I could call and talk to. I would have no problem even opening up to my father. Now, my father my father is not as good at, at, at uh, about communicating his feelings as my mother is. I, every, every time I want to have a serious dialogue, I usually go to my mother. And we see, like, we, we don't even need to talk to each other. We just see each other eye to eye. Like, we know what each other are thinking, basically. We're, share, we're basically sharing a brain. And I, I, don't know if that, I don't know if that's my father's personality or if that's something that was 
beaten into him just based on when he was when he was raised and, and how he grew up. He worked at a steel mill. He's surrounded by all men. Um, I'm assuming that they didn't have anything in place where if any guys were dealing with anything, with anything at work where they could go and talk to, where those safety nets are in place. So yeah, I, I was I was fortunate where I just I, I never had an issue with that, and and I think that that's probably a big component to where it never really really blew up, and I was able to keep it on the rails. You also you talked about this loving childhood that you had that you knew that it was okay to ask for help. And it sounds like when you were feeling at this very low point, uh, when you didn't have that contract, you asked for help. And it's really hard for so many people to ask for help. Yeah, I think that there's a, a, a point in time where it's, where it's definitely okay to ask for help. I think there's also um, an element where I, I, think, I think it's even like the suicide rate and the amount of people from, who are suffering from mental health has risen. I think that there's a lot of contributing factors to that. I think that accountability is is one of them. And I think that if if you can look yourself in the mirror and you know you've been accountable, chances are you're probably in some form or another going to be able to get through whatever you're getting through on your own. Now, if it's something where you you have been accountable and yet it's still bugging you, then yeah, then it's probably time where you go go talk to somebody. Do you mind if I push back a little bit on, on sure. the accountability? And maybe it's because I don't fully understand what you mean by that. But people who end their lives often feel like it's a relief for them to escape that pain. They're in pain and that I don't want to live with this anymore. And also because your brain lies to you when you're horribly depressed like that, your brain's also telling you everyone else around is going to feel better about it. So, and I may have missed, honestly, I may have misunderstood where you were going, but when you're that depressed, you can't sort of think through in an accountability perspective. It's more your brain is telling you you're worthless, you're useless, you're hopeless. There's no reason to go on and you, you believe it. And in fact, many people, when they make the decision, this is done, they have a sense of relief. They're almost brighter at that point, right before they make that final decision. Yeah, so I, I wasn't trying to paint it all with a, a big brush as far as the mental health. If you're in a state where you're contemplating suicide, obviously that is, that's extreme, right? What I was kind of talking about, I was kind of saying is like, in some cases, it's it's preventable with with holding yourself accountable. Like I know where sometimes I'm I'm in a not so positive mind frame when I really start saying, what makes me feel better when I wake up in the morning? Well, when I go work out and I'm eating healthier and I'm handling my 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 business, and then it, it starts swaying back to the more positive mind frame. But when you're talking about like suicide, oh well, I mean that's like where you know where I'm like prescription pills those may come in handy. Talking to a therapist on a daily basis, hundred percent. Like I want those people to have access to those tools in order to bring it back. I just think that that one component to getting back to that positive mind frame to a place where you're not going to do that is accountability. So, so I appreciate you, you kind of going deeper into that because in no way, shape or form am I saying accountability is a solution for suicide. I think it's a, it's one of the components to getting back in a better mind frame to not be in that place. I think we agree, Paul. And there's a couple of things. One is there's a whole lot of stuff you can do when you're healthy and when you're stressed out 
that you actually can control that have a real impact on your ability to get through a tough time with exercise that grows brain cells, eating healthily, right? That, that you, a healthy gut bacteria actually protects your brain. All So we are completely aligned. I think one of the challenges is not having a vocabulary. We got all these young people right now that are showing up in emergency departments because they don't know what's normal. And we haven't taught people what's normal worry and what's anxiety and when do you really need help? And the other piece about the kind of population that, well, your fan base, I'm using my my doctor voice, so your fan base, is they are at the highest risk of suicide. Middle-aged guys are middle-aged men between... 35 and 65, highest rate of suicide. So you're an influencer on that front too, which is why I push back gently <laughs> on what you were saying. Oh, no, but I and, totally and, and, get and, it. And, and, I'm, and, I'm glad, and I'm glad you did because I think that like, for instance, like during, uh, during COVID, I had a good friend of mine who would have never s- suspected in a million years would have all of a sudden fell in depression. And I, you know, we, 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 would, we would have three hour conversations sometimes. And I'm so happy that we we have that type of relationship where we could talk. And, you know, in, in the midst of the dialogue, I was like, well, you know, sometimes when I'm dealing with that type of stuff, like, you know, I, I, I tend to, you know, work out more, um, you know, avoid social media more and, and try to take control of the situation. And I was trying to ask you, are you doing those things in order to bring it back? And he's like busy. He's like, yes. And, and, and my doctor seems to think it's actually a chemical imbalance to the point where he took, uh, he tried ketamine, uh, he tried Ativan and he tried a bunch of other stuff and, and it was, it was real. And it was something that I'd never, you know, I'd never dealt with it that bad and never went to the prescription drugs. So it was, it was interesting to hear his perspective and it opened my eyes to the even darker side of it. And fortunately for me, he's ended up coming out of it. I think that Sometimes he does have to take the prescription where sometimes he doesn't and he's not fully re- uh, relying on it. But kind of what you alluded to is sometimes it's it's really out of your control. And I think that you're saying men, and especially in that age, age bracket, do have um, do tend to have, a, 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 I guess, a bigger percentage of people who are committing suicide. You can answer probably if you think about it, you would know the answer to this question. First of all, they don't talk to each other. They don't go to their doctor. So you taking the time, the two of you, and I know Corey does this probably daily, reaching out to people who are struggling, but also access to deadly means. And when men decide that they're going to end their life, they end their life. Women tend not to uh, grab the gun. And we, we talked to Clint Malarchuk, right? That, and whether that was a, an intentional or an impulsive act, he had a gun in his hand when he when he shot himself. So a lack of communication, not feeling comfortable reaching out, and then access to deadly means when they decide they're going to end their life, they pick the right thing to do it, unfortunately. Like it's more of, it's more of a decision that they make and they do. It's, just, it's, 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 it's definite. That's interesting. But you usually suicide... It grows over time. So it, the impulsive act is actually unusual. It's something that you kind of socialize with your brain. Maybe this is a possibility. It's one of the on a list of options. And slowly people's brains come around to, yeah, this this is a, a serious option. And then the relief of I don't have to live with this anymore. My loved ones, you know, my 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 boyfriend or my my family, they just don't have to live with this anymore. I'm going everyone's gonna be relieved. And then it's a sense of, okay, 
now I know this is what I have to do. And that's that scary when uh, talking to patients who are there and have told me I'm there. It's terrifying to see someone so relieved. This is the option. I got it now. I know what to do. So Diane, like, and this is what I try to get across and it gets better, right? It gets better. Um, There's always a just, path ahead. If you can just and hang in there. The hope that we have to keep spreading is no matter where you are, there is always a path ahead, but it doesn't feel like that when you're in that dark space. No, I, yeah, I appreciate you guys. And and like even you pushing back on that, it's like, you know, maybe some men who are listening might have had my mind frame on it. And and now they hear, hear that and they kind of change their perspective. So I'm glad you did. But what you said, Paul, I think is important because there are things that you can do. Sometimes you're too sick to do anything. You can't drag your ass out of bed. Your brain is not working. You As much as you want to go for that walk or eat a Mediterranean diet, you can't yoga your way out of a serious depression, right? right? Yeah, it's true. But those things that you said are real. Walking, getting that, moving around, uh, talking to somebody, eating healthily, they're help. But when you're really depressed, you know, a blueberry's not going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. In, uh, Biz, you talked about not going down a path of alcohol too. And, and, um, but it's, uh, I always say alcohol is not your friend in situations like that. And we all like to have a good time. We all like to have a drink and, you know, and, and all that. But how many guys that we saw going down that path that we played with, that we should have said something, that we should have talked to them and asked them, but you just don't, you just don't want to get in their business, right? I think we need to start talking about, you know, asking people and in a gentle way, even just, hey, how's everything? Are you okay? When yeah. you see that kind of thing. Oh man, man, I, I I agree. I I don't I don't know if I've uh, I don't know how many guys I've played with where you could see it getting to a, a really really bad place. Um, My generation drank. <laughs> yeah, and that's a thing too. I I, I kind of transitioned from when I first started pro, where yeah, we might have a six pack after a game to where guys were having protein shakes this minute they left the ice, and it, it kind of goes back to just how everything is changing at least in, in hockey in that way, where it's it's a lot healthier atmosphere, whether it's the resources available to guys who are struggling mentally, how it's looked upon, how supportive teammates are when they do, in fact, take a leave of absence, like you're seeing with Carey Price, uh, Jonathan Duran, and how, how supportive the entire organization and fan base was behind it. And, you know, you said it, you said it earlier in the, in the pod. It's like, you, you're like, you know, do you think that back then guys would have, like, even if I did come out and say that, they would have kind of had the conversation with me? Hershey, I, I don't know. And they might have even been uncomfortable if you would have brought that to them because they didn't even know what it was. So now it's just like it's, as a society and as, as, as bleak as it looks because you are saying that it's on the rise, the resources in place to, tr to try to help it are getting better and better every day, yeah. which is a positive you also, you talked about alcohol, but what about cannabis? What about psychedelics? Where are you on that? M massive cannabis fan. Yeah, I, I believe in it all. I, I just, you know, we kind of talk about all these different ways it can go. I think that that you have to take everything into consideration, especially at the fact that my buddy talked about the chemical imbalance. Well, it's like, well, if mushrooms is something that in, in handled properly, in, in how you um, how you ingest it and when you're supposed to based on a professional's advice, that might 
help somebody else way more than it did somebody somebody different same with goes with cannabis like some people smoke cannabis every day to maybe deal with the fact that they 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 see the world in a different light and i know i i was smoking a lot of it during during covid because you know i'm i'm a type of person where i have to stay moving constantly and if i'm not i kind of get I become a shell of myself where go smoking cannabis would make me a little bit sillier and happier now I I think I started maybe smoking a little bit too much and then I started seeing the consequences from that and it goes always comes back to balance always comes back to balance as far as what you're consuming on a on a drug level and as passionate as I am about the more of the natural ones definitely do it do it uh within reason What were the consequences um, with, like with cannabis, as, as happy as it may be, it made me maybe a little bit lazy, um, maybe a little bit more foggier brain. You know, when I would smoke sativa, I would tend to amplify and then I would I would go highs and lows. Um, and I'm not a massive indica person because it would it would just like make me very tired and sleepy. And especially during the daytime, I just like don't like feeling like that. I I have found though. The, the more I exercise and, and all, all of this stuff I talked about earlier, I'm in a way better state of, state of mind. And, it, and, and I keep reiterating it, but I also like at nighttime, I like to smoke like a half joint because it's all about balance. I feel that I've earned that just as much as like I don't drink every night now. Or, or, you know, maybe I used to binge drink when I played, but it's a little bit different, Hershey, when you retire, because when I'm exercising every day at a very intense level, you feel like you've earned the right to go have two, three, 20 beers because you know you're making up the next day and you're going to go sweat it out. And I think that those natural endorphins just kind of keep you in a happier place where all of a sudden when you're retired and the only person keeping yourself accountable to go work out and, and exercise is yourself. So... And, and, and I talked about the, people say that there's almost like a P, PTSD from when you retire from, from sport and it was a certain way. And a big element to that is the fact that your life is mapped out. You show up to training camp and legit, this is where you have to be at every time. Now, when you're retired, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make your own schedule. You have to get up and, and, and force yourself to go all do these things in order to get to a place where you're going to feel accomplished again. Some people would call drinking 20 beer or um, smoking all day, every day, self-medication. Yep. And I wonder, if, yep. was there anything you were medicating? I think that during COVID, I was going through my own shit. Yeah, for sure. I was, I, yeah, I was, I was dealing with a bit of a depression. And on, on top of that is we were still doing the podcast. So I had to get on and, and entertain and try to be try to try to be the person that everyone knows and and thinks they 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 thinks they know and that wasn't the case yeah it was a grind and that's how i dealt with it at the time but i'm i'm past that and that's in the in the past and that was a part of the growth and understanding that if you're going to if you keep doing that all day it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and then eventually i snapped out of it so and and that's that's why i say i'm still a big fan of it because i know when i do it at the appropriate times and I'm not doing it to self-medicate myself. That's, that's when I enjoy it. And I think that it's, it's, it's good. Now, some people do need it as medication and that does help them on a daily basis. And if that's actually genuinely helping them, then, then all the power to them. And it's probably, I don't know you as, as a, as a therapist, is that probably a healthier approach than to maybe taking chemical drugs or is it that, is that not how it works? 
So uh, first of all, Paul, no judgment here at all, because as a psychiatrist, my job is is medication primarily. But so many of the young people I see, that is how they're coping with their depression or their bipolar or their ADHD is cannabis. And uh, I actually believe that once your brain is fully formed, you know, because it's not, THC is not good for a developing brain, but once you hit 25, you got that fully developed brain, you want to smoke pot now and again, knock yourself out. I don't care. Just don't drive, please. But in a developing brain, there's just mountains of data about the impact of THC and the fact that it can unearth the risk for schizophrenia. It We know that it, you have less likelihood of being able to have a stable mood with bipolar, for instance. So I love having these kind of conversations with someone who is a sponge and actually wants to have a back and forth about this because it's not it's not a black and white story. But at the same time, you say, well, there's those chemicals like what I do, but in fact, arsenic is a natural product, right? And we're not recommending that. So we get into this whole natural product idea without realizing that most of the drugs that I prescribe came from a natural chemical, right? And I believe in exercise. I believe in diet. I believe in in talk therapy. It has an impact on how your genes work. But I also believe that medication saves lives and that it's not like a chemical somehow different from cannabis and that we have the data to support it, the research underlying I've said, Diana, I wouldn't be here today without medication, right? I mean, I I wouldn't be here. I would I would say my perspective completely changed on it. Hershey, when I did have that long dialogue with my friend about the whole the chemical element, and you and you're saying that it saved your life. Yeah, well, yeah, and and it's I think where Diane's coming from is just the developing brain, right? Like, or or mentally ill brain, right? A brain that's really ill. That, like we said, you can't yoga your way out of a depression, or or you know, Mediterranean diet your way out when you've got a serious depression. Sometimes medication is the only way through that. It only reflects the severity of the illness. A fascinating conversation. Uh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a ton. Do we do this once I, a week, guys? Well, I'd yeah. Like, <laughs> there's, and there's no, like I said, I, there's it, no judgment. I get free therapy. Audience, yeah. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want you to spread the good word, and it's not like I'm, I'm not a granny. Get away from that yeah. pot stuff. I'm saying, <laughs> as an adult, you can make your own decisions. I like uh, tonight. I'm going home and making a Negroni, and I'm going to enjoy that. But when is it risky? to a developing brain, when someone is is mentally ill and really struggling, that's when cannabis is a risk. And psilocybin, right? This is a very exciting area. There's some yeah. really early evidence that looks very interesting, but the reality is for my science brain, we don't have the data yet for me to be able to say it's a good idea for someone who's depressed to use that. But to your point, ketamine. No one thought ketamine would work. Ketamine infusions work. Now we have a nasal spray that has esketamine in it, which is a kind of ketamine that is approved by Health Canada, by the FDA. So we need the science. We need the evidence behind it, and then I'm cool. Diane, the brain, it's 2021, and we're just starting to dig into it and understand what each area does for us. It's such a complex thing. Why do people feel like medication makes them less of a person or makes them um, feel defeated when it's actually something that can help our brains? And how is science uh, developing right now 
so that in the future we can have better medications that don't have the side effects, that don't have some of the things that people want to stay away from? Well, I think it's a great question, and it comes down, unfortunately, when it comes to medication, it's the behavior of drug companies over the years that really have caused people to lose faith. You know, it takes forever to to build trust, moments to lose it, and then you may never get it back again. And the reality is that that pharmaceutical companies have behaved badly in the past. Now, fortunately, they've changed their behavior, and they cleaned up their act, and big pharma... I believe, is absolutely critical to the health of the world. So once they've spent all this money on research, right, and it takes at least a decade, a billion dollars for a new psychiatric medication, then they have to go through these regulatory bodies like Health Canada and the FDA and get approval for the drug. And then they have to market the drug so people will use it. And I have to say, because of the stigma of mental illness and how complicated mental illnesses are, we don't get new medications in psychiatry very often. As a matter of fact, there's a new medication, just got approval this year. It's the first new mechanism of action for depression in 30 years. So that speaks to how slow it is to get a new drug to market that really seems to be different. We don't have great treatments in psychiatry. Part of that is stigma. Part of it is that the world is complicated. Uh, The world of mental illness is complicated. But what we do know is with treatment, people do survive sometimes devastating illnesses. And like you've said yourself, without medication, you don't believe you'd be here. I wouldn't be. I I don't think I would have made it in in the state that I was in. Paul talks a little bit about psychedelics too as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on psychedelics and the future of those? Well, there has been some really exciting research on psychedelics and specifically, actually, for the treatment of depression. But we're, again, we're not at the point yet of having that really high quality bulk of research that tells us that this is safe. It's a safe thing to do. And so people like me will not recommend it until. We know that there's enough evidence out there to support it. And if, you know, there's a lot of excitement, which actually worries me because it'll mean that more and more people will use it without us having real evidence to show not only that it's safe, but also that it's not dangerous. We need well-designed trials. We need independent researchers, double-blind placebo-controlled trials. That's how we find out whether or not these drugs are going to work. But I will say... It's one of the most exciting areas of psychiatry. But think about it this way. In order for this to be effective, the research to date shows that you have to have a guide, and it's six to eight hours of psychotherapy. Most people can't afford that. So we need a lot more research to understand how we can deliver this in a way that's effective and safe. Well, and you don't always know where you're getting it from if you're just doing it yourself. It has a very good point of having it controlled and somebody that knows what they're doing. But once we have that science, what's involved in the process to get it approved? Does it have to go through the FDA? Does it? What does it have to go through? How long does it take? And is it um, something that is actually stunting? Or um, I wouldn't say the word stunting, but... Uh, is it actually becoming a wall uh, in getting new medications out there more quickly for people to help them? 
We all can re- remember some disasters that have happened by not taking the time to do the research necessary to make sure that a drug is safe. And so for me, it's a, it's a shame that it takes as long as it does, but that time makes sure that the studies are done. We need those regulatory bodies like the FDA, Health Canada, to take the time to make sure things are safe and effective, that they're not going to cause long-term side effects. Now, you may have people saying, well, look how fast they got those vaccines going. That's because they had researchers around the world doing major studies all at the same time. It's unprecedented that you've got a billion vaccines now. Sometimes it can take 30 years to get that many people on a particular medication. So this is what happens when these companies work together. Why can't we do that for mental health? We have a suicide epidemic on our hands, and these people are struggling. Why can't we do that for mental health, along with other diseases? Why, why can't we? It, it was done so quickly to help people, I guess because it was a world issue, but I, I just don't understand why, why we can't do that for all these medications. Funding, money, the fact that People don't want to share their research because of the fact that there is a, a financial reward at the end. Uh, and also, you, you do have to remember that mental illness is complicated, that we, we know some of what causes mental illness, but we don't certainly have the whole story. And uh, so trying to find that magic bullet, really, really tough. Rising up from the bottom, Paul began to climb out. He got a tryout with the AHL's Manchester Monarchs in the minor leagues. That turned into a contract, and that led to him winning the Calder Cup in 2015. Most importantly, he credits the guys in the locker room for helping him heal. I don't think that those guys still to this day realize what they did for me as an individual, right? It takes an army. Just being in that winning environment and positivity and having fun and and all that, it, it really helped. It, it propelled me to like to, it was a complete overhaul and i felt like at, at at that point after we won it i was playing with the house's money and and i wasn't i wasn't ready to retire at that point because you go from the, the highs of playing in the nhl to all of a sudden oh you could have that mentality like oh i'm in the minors like this sucks i'm riding the bus and i'm not flying around you just you all of a sudden became grateful for where you were, and I and I was, and I and and I I tell them I'm like you guys like basically saved my life, not not from a point where I was ready to commit suicide, but just from a from a the way I I, I perceived it and looked at it. So yeah, I, that was that was so Biz, so special to me. That you're too that modest. Run. You 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 had a fight in, on two torn ACLs in the final, didn't you? In the final game, that was a very. F- Everything happens for a reason. No, that wasn't Hershey. That was my okay. last ever game. And I guess we yep. could finish on that note. And, and I don't know how many people have heard the story, but I couldn't keep up with these young guys anymore. So I, we won the Calder Cup. I ended up signing uh, two one two more one-year deals with uh, the Ontario Reign because the team had moved to California. Still the AHL team for the LA Kings. And in my last year, I ended up tearing my right ACL about 17 games into the season so i was like oh man i don't want like that to be it and i still didn't know if i was going to retire but i was kind of like ah oh, this is probably the end and the trainer was like well soccer players do it you can prehab it and as long as you're activating all the muscles around it you can wear a brace and, and you could probably finish the season so i did that prehab it for about two two and a half months 
uh, tried to come back, tweaked it a little bit, prehabs a little bit more. And then about, and I, I wanted to come back about a week and a half before playoffs to try to get in game shape to finish out the season. And we were in San Jose playing against the Barracuda, against their AHL team. And shit you not, in the first period, I go to like get a puck and then protect it. And I get hit by someone and I feel the other one go on my left side. And because I, I I knew the feeling and I, 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 I remember finishing the shift and I, I was like a Bambi out there. So after the shift, the whistle goes, I skate back to the bench. There's a TV timeout and I go over to Mirzi, our trainer who helped me prehab. And I go, Mirzi, I go, I think I just tore my left ACL. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, something doesn't feel right. And he's like, okay. So I sat on the bench. The period finished about two, three minutes later. I go in, take off the gear, and you know how they test it where they go back and forth with it, much like the other one? Normally, it moves about three to five center, uh, centimeters or millimeters, millimeters. And he was moving it, and it was about you know 17 to 20. And he's like, yeah. He's like, <laughs> he's like you tore your other one. And I was, I was, I was like, oh. And my, I never forget Mike Stuthers, who was my junior coach, and he was the one who brought me to Manchester. I love him like a father. And he came in, and I go, "Yeah, it's done." And and like he's like, and like I kind of I cried a little bit, and I said, "Well, I'm finishing the game." And he goes, "All right." And so I put my gear back on in the second period. I ended up fighting Zach Startini, and I could barely stand up. Right, but it was just so fitting at the way that my career had gone that that was going to be my last game, and that was it. That was my last ever game. And, uh, you know, I supported the guys. We, we, we ended up getting beat in the first round of playoffs that year, but kind of comical, but just very fitting about how it all went. And, uh, and once again, like looking back, that's kind of the way it should have been. And, you know, I wasn't worried about the extra damage it would have caused. That's just, that's the, the end. Corey, that win just makes you feel so good, doesn't it? As you know, I like to rapid fire a couple of questions at the end of our chats. So that's how I think we should end today. With two things I wanted to know about Paul. First of all, his greatest achievement, as well as what would he tell his 16-year-old self? Um, greatest achievement, God. I don't know. I've never really given that much thought. So I have a type of thinking where I just like, if even if like something happens, that's really good. Like I'm like on to the next, I don't really like, I don't like to like, I don't like to pat the back too long. I just like on to the next. I think that that may be more so derived from when I was scared shitless on my couch, knowing that like nobody gives a fuck what you've accomplished in, in the past. It's like, what's, what's next? Stay moving. Um, but if I had to maybe one thing, Probably finding a way to 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 have a career outside of playing, and 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 the way that I've kind of been able to 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 figure it out on the back end, because you know I just didn't like when I, so 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 I hit the ground running. So my greatest achievement, let's say Biz Does BC, because the minute I retired, I did that that silly uh, video series. It was a five episode series, and the amount of the amount of uh, knowledge I gained from being in front of the camera, being behind the camera, logistics, um, having to create your own schedule, uh, manage a team, and and trying to find financing for it, it it propelled all of this to to the TNT. I always go back to that, and and I'm I'm, I'm proud that I I took the initiative to do that on my own. Nobody was like I signed with the Coyotes already, but they they didn't even I don't even know if they knew I was doing this. 
So if I would have just done the coyote's job, I would just still probably be doing the coyote's job. And then that opened more and more doors. So people were like, holy shit, this guy can like push content. And, you know, as, 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 as silly and as, as, as cringe maybe at moments that, that it was, it's, you know, the, I was happy at the risk that I took and how many doors it opened for me in my post career. And in a million years, did you ever guess that would get you there? No fucking clue. I, exactly. I, I still, I still, do, I, I try not to look at, I try to, as I said, keep it moving. But that's like one thing where everybody always asks, like, you know, how did this all start? I think that's what kind of propelled everything. What would you tell your 16-year-old self where you're sitting right now, looking back, that, that young man with the chip on his shoulder, what would you say to him? I, I, I just, I, I pro- probably nothing. Cause I, I'm, I'm really happy at the way that it, it's, it's all came to be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the mistakes that I've made cause it's really carved me into who I am today. So, so I probably, I probably give myself some, maybe some winning lottery numbers or something. So maybe I didn't have to work <laughs> as hard, but no, but uh, yeah, really maybe it would have been uh, lay off the sauce a, a little bit in the partying while I was in the midst of my NHL career, because as much as I had to become the happy go lucky party guy to kind of keep everybody light, it did, I think in a, in a, in a sense, shorten my career. Cause I was drinking too much and part and as, as opposed to it sucked me away from training. So I didn't, I didn't get to play as long, but going back to being hypocritical, everything happens for a reason here I am now. So, so nothing to my 16 year old self. Yeah. Biz, thank you so much for today. You, you've given us so much and I just want people to know what a great human being you are and helping people and helping us today to, to try and help others. And, uh, I, you know, like I say to all my buddies, I love you, brother. Um, I know you'd be there for me anytime. And, and, uh, it's, thank you so much for this and just it's been amazing. Hershey, yeah. right back at you, buddy, for everything that you've been through to, to still step up and, and continually do this in order to spread more awareness, man. You're, you're a G. Uh, you're, you're loved in the hockey community. You're, you're kind of like a founding father with the subject. So keep doing what you guys are doing. And, and collectively, the whole team, you guys are crushing it. And uh, maybe we could uh, jump on in, in the future. Absolutely. It's awesome. Love Thanks so much, again, Paul. You, you guys are awesome. Keep going. Thank you. Good luck. Take care.